Dead or alive, you are coming with me. What is this bullshit? Good trash genre cast. I love you. I know. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Hello everybody and welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast. We gather in a room around a cell phone <laughs> because some moron forgot his laptop. Well, you said it, not us. Well, We're nothing if not improvisers. Yeah, so here we are uh, doing um, our uh, continued marathon, our uh, anti-trash marathon, working our way through films that you would perhaps find in a film stays course, looking at Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter. Brought to you by Dalton Stewart. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this movie. Uh, I finally caught up with it a couple of months ago and knew that we were going to have to talk it's about this all movie. he's been talking about. It's so good. If you've so noticed, it's been his pick in every game or uh, <laughs> yeah, well, instead for the last month and a half. It. He yeah. has kept it at the forefront of... It's, it'll, it'll go on the, on the back shelf now for a while. So, well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and identify our disembodied voices speaking into my cell phone, probably into your cell phone, dear listener, speaking back to you. It's so meta. There's some symmetry there somehow. <laughs> so who are you, sir, across the way? My name is Dalton Stewart. And fellas, let me tell you about the story. Of right hand love and left hand hate. That's I'm not gonna do the whole thing. Okay, man, you took my intro. Oh, sorry. I mean, yeah, it's a good one. It is. It's a good one. Well, while he looks to find a quote, my name is Dustin Sells, and I am leaning on the everlasting arms of Arthur Gordon as we record here today. And uh, yeah, what? who are you, sir? I am Arthur Gordon, and Dalton, mm-hmm. Dustin. He ain't no preacher, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to whisper you, Arthur. I was like, oh, just just do It's a Hard World for Little Things. That's a good one. That is a good line. Some good lines in this movie, dude. Lillian Gish is a surprise and wonderful, yeah. Oh, she's a blast. She's so good. So here we are talking about this film. And just to warn you, dear listener, this is not a review show. It is an analysis show. And so we might spoil this movie from 1955 um, if perhaps you have not seen it. And there are good chances that you may yep. not have seen it uh, for various reasons. And that's fine. Uh, but we will spoil it at the end of the show when we do our uh, business time analysis. Uh, but before that, we'll have synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema. Then we'll have our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be spoiler free. We will play a game which will not involve spoilers, I don't think think this week and then we get down to business you have been warned so mr arthur gordon let's hear that synopsis please a religious fanatic marries a gullible widow whose young children are reluctant to tell him where their real daddy hid ten thousand dollars he'd stolen in a robbery it's in the sled i'm telling you it's always in the sled and there's always money in, in the, the banana, banana stand. So, uh, there you go, dear listener. That is where we're coming from. I'm going to go ahead and start with you, Dalton. You like this movie, we know, but tell us why you like this movie so much. I think what works so well about Night of the Hunter is it's not what you expect it to be. Um, and we'll talk more about that in, in the spoiler section, but I think about at the one-quarter, one-third mark, the plot escalates incredibly quickly. And you look at the clock and think, this movie has only been going for like 30 minutes. 
sure, 30, 45 minutes, surely we're not getting to this already. What is this movie about? And I think that's what works so well about it, is it's not at all what you think it's going to be about when the film starts. And, and, and it really does a great job of subverting your expectations. And I don't know if that is because it really was kind of one of the first movies of its kind. I, I think you would be hard-pressed to find another Hollywood film about serial killers prior to this. And that is ostensibly what this film is. It is a thriller film about a serial murderer. Um, and again, in a time when that was not a word, we didn't have that word for another 20, 25 years. Um, so Lawton is really not only working in a genre that doesn't exist yet, but he's working with societal ideas that haven't been solidified yet. And I think that's part of what makes it so vital. The other thing that makes it vital is it's got a lot of heart for a film that is about a serial killer going after a bank robber's lost fortune. It's got a big, beautiful, beating heart, and it never stops being about people, and it never stops considering the cost of, of, of violence. It's never a film that feels exploitative or like it's diminishing the weight of of trauma. Uh, and again, this is a film from an era when a lot of films did that. A lot of films didn't really reckon with violence in this time. Uh, and again, there's plenty of filmmakers in the 50s who were. I mean, John John Ford did a really great job of taking really was making revisionist westerns before that was a thing, right? So I'm, I'm not trying to say all 50s movies are completely clueless and, you know, don't know how to be about bigger issues, but it's not uncommon. So uh, I, I think really the two standouts, the four standouts, are Robert Mitchum's performance, uh, Gish's performance, which Dustin already mentioned. Uh, what was her first name? Lillian Gish. Lillian Gish, thank you. Uh, and the children, mm -hmm. the two child actors who you don't, who who end up being a much bigger part of this film than you expect them to be, are really quite good. Um, and there's plenty of very smart musings throughout the history of cinema about child performers and, you know, when are they good? When are they bad? What makes them good? What makes them bad? I, I just want to say these are great child performances and these kids really carry this movie. And that's a lot to ask of children. Uh, aside from all those things, it's just beautifully shot. The fact that Charles Lawton only directed one movie, he was primarily a stage director, so it makes sense that the performances are good. But the fact that the camera work is just beautiful. The photography in this film is absolutely insane. There's one scene in particular, without going too much into plot points, where a boat is going down a river. And there's an, just an entire sequence of this boat traveling down a river. And it's one of the most beautiful and hypnotic things I've ever seen. And I think about it all the time. At, like, and that's part of why I wanted to talk about this movie on the show is that sequence is burned into my memory for the rest of my life. It's just that pretty. So again, great performances, beautiful photography, um, and a story that is socially and um, narratively ahead of its time. Come on, we got to talk about this film. And the fact that it's not more talked about. Again, you're right. This is a film you could see finding its way into a film studies course. But really, this film doesn't have a lot of social capital. What's interesting, though, is the lists you will see this film end up on a lot are the a, uh, the uh, BFI, when BFI does the, and Sight and Sound do their top lists of the greatest movies ever made. 
this movie always ends up on the director's list, but not the uh, the critics list, which is really interesting. So for like I think the last two lists they did, it was in like the top twenty of the director's list. It did make number two on the Coyote Cinema list in two thousand eight. There you go. See, and Next I mixed Citizen Kane. Okay, really? Yeah, that's awesome. Number See, two. Yeah. Maybe it's uh, American uh, film writers that have forgotten about it. Because again, I. I knew that people liked this movie. I knew that Spike Lee was a big fan of this film. Uh, he directly references it and mm-hmm. do the right thing. I know there's a lot of directors that are big fans of this movie, um, but it you know took years of being in the film for me to even find out about this. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, let's talk. I, this is why I wanted to talk about. Well, that. those are good reasons to make us watch the movie. I I agree entirely, Mr. Dulcer, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say in terms of a thumbs up, thumbs down review regarding the Night of the Hunter? I, uh, as Dalton mentioned, I really didn't know what to expect going into this. I actually had it in my head that this was going to be more of an urban film noir ah. type film, just based off the title. And it the, sometimes the cover gets art. categorized as a film yeah. noir, too. And some of the art I'd seen for it, it felt more of a noir. But uh, it's more of this kind of Hitchcockian suspense thriller uh, with the period element put into it. And it works. I mean, and I don't mean this as a, uh, a slide on Lawton's direction, but it really does feel like uh, Charles Lawton playing Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, in a lot of ways, the way he's constructing a lot of the sharp, uh, shots and using the the darkness and the shadows, and and I think that's probably why it does get uh, grouped in there with Mars because he is utilizing those kind of dark places and things like that. Um, uh, but it works. It's a really good thriller. It's a really good suspense film, um, and it does take you places you aren't expecting, like Dalton mentioned. And I, I, it's really going to be me probably echoing a lot of what Dalton says. Um, it's very well constructed. There's some beautiful. Uh, cinematography, especially in the latter half of the film, as uh, the story progresses into the kind of this weird road movie, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, but uh, it 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 really works, and having the uh, the children play the leads, I think, works very well, and it, I think that adds to the heart element of it, uh, and the way their story kind of evolves and where they wind up uh, really plays into that as well. And I think there's something really sweet about that, and and where it goes. Um, I, I like uh, Billy Chapin, who's the the boy. Uh, he does great work. I don't really care for the girl as much. Um, she has some moments, but for the most part, she doesn't really do as well. I don't think, but uh, they do carry it well together. Um, Mitchum's great. Uh, he's the the preacher man is a uh, an effective bad guy. And I was watching some of the supplements on the Criterion, and they were talking about how there's like this supernatural aspect to him, which I think is uh, great. And I love the use of a old hymn. Uh, and making it kind of his uh, theme song and invoking these kind of feelings of dread and fear, which is very uh, interesting, especially in 1955. Um, and the choice to shoot black and white, I mean, 55, we're already dealing some in color. Uh, I know black and white's cheaper, but, you know, I think it works here, and I think it serves the film uh, better for it being in black and white. And so, you know what? Uh, I don't think it's, you know, the best thriller I've seen, best suspense film I've seen, but I think it's really good. And I think as a, you know, first-time director, uh, Charles Lawton, uh, he knocks it out of the park, I think. I think, you know, if we'd seen more from him, I think he really could have evolved a, a style that would have been unique. And and so for that, I think it, you know, stands the test of time. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. There's not a whole lot I can add. I like the movie a lot as well. I've seen it before. It is uh, it is really, really beautifully shot. There is some underwater photography that I'm sure we're going to talk about eventually that is mm-hmm. really amazing and resting. Uh, in a particular moment. And so uh, that's that's amazing. Uh, again, the performances, as we've already said, are very, very solid. I like Shelley Winters quite a lot, too, as Willa. So, I mean, there's, there's just very, very, very good stuff happening uh, throughout the film. And I think um, as we talk about film noir 
And uh, we have to also just talk about how much it relies on German Expressionism, which of course is part of what connects to film noir. And, and Expressionism we find in film noir, but also in American horror film. Uh, yeah. Interesting fun fact, uh, Charles Lawton was homosexual, uh, but he had a beard. He had a wife. Uh, his wife was a lady called Elsa Lancaster. You may know her as the Bride of Frankenstein uh, from The Bride of Frankenstein. Huh. Also, she played uh, Mary Shelley uh, briefly in the little wraparound beginning of that film, and uh, which is my... I, I like Bride of Frankenstein quite a bit more than I do uh, the original Frankenstein film. But And so that sort of expressionistic horror film kind of thing that's going on... Also, the film is just so full of so much artifice that it, it feels... Constructed in a good way. We were talking about this a little bit last time when we were together talking about Eraserhead and the artifice and the artificialness of a, a particular kind of a work of art. And uh, there, there is a, a way in which it does not lend itself too much to realism in its style, yet it's dealing with very, very sort of real uh, American problems. There are things going on in the world at the time that people are sort of aware of this phenomenon that will later get named as a serial killer, but it doesn't really, you know, it's not part of the popular discussion at this point. Also, just conversations about American Protestantism. Uh, There's a weird way in which Charles Lawton and other examples like Alfred Hitchcock are able to investigate part of the American psyche in a way that other, uh, that American directors are sort of, they don't have access to it because of their and so I think he's really, really incisive in the way he is able to investigate and tell this particular story, uh, looking at the very specific sort of revivalist Protestant brand of Christianity at the time, uh, well, I mean, just of American history in general, uh, to weave in some Gothic themes, um, because it is very much a rural Gothic as a film, and despite all the sort of natural, uh, pastoral kind of uh, photography, again, it still has a high level of of artifice and ornamentation uh, that goes with it as well, and I, I just really, really enjoy it uh, quite a bit. So I'm with you guys. I like this movie a lot, and uh, it's 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 pretty solid. So I'm I'm glad that we're here, and I'm glad that we're talking about this. Um, and of course, we talking about this in a room on a cell phone. Well, I mean, we desperately want to talk about this movie for the interwebs, uh, but we'd be talking about it anyway. But we're doing this so that you can be part of the conversation as well via the magical means that we know of social media. So Dalton, tell us a little bit about how they can also partake in this conversation that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be recording this on a stinking cell phone right now. I, I will do those things that you've asked me to do, Dustin. Listener, if you are interested in engaging with us, uh, there's a lot of ways you can do that. Uh, first of all, you, you could just email us. You don't have to go get on social media. It's kind of a pain in the ass these days. Uh, you can just email us at goodtrashgenrecast uh, at gmail.com. If you have thoughts on a film that you wish us to share with the world, or just, you know, you have feedback that... Uh, you you think we could be doing something uh, better than we are doing it? Go ahead and do that. We'll we'll listen. We'll read it. And uh, if you want to share it on the show, make sure you let us know, and we'll uh, try to give the choicest nuggets out there into the world. Uh, if you do want to partake in social media, you can find us over on Twitter. That's at good underscore trash, and that is the place to find us doing all of the things that we uh, we do, not just this show, but also our written articles, uh, and also the only other show that we are co-producing right now, I guess is a better way to put it, uh, The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, uh, which is a comedy podcast, but also a music review podcast, but also a spirituality podcast. It's sort of, kind of, yeah. It's a lot of things, and it's very, very good. Um, so if you like this show, and you're not already listening to that show, I strongly recommend you go check it out. Um, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash GTM. We don't really spend a whole lot of time on there, but, you know, we, we keep an eye on it if people are uh, telling us stuff or asking us stuff. 
Um, you can also just head on over to goodtrashmedia.com, which is a, a home for all of the things you just heard about. Uh, last but certainly not least, we would appreciate it if you would go on over uh, to iTunes or Stitcher Radio, however you get this into your feed. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe to the show, uh, and however you do that, it definitely helps our visibility. Uh, I said that was the last one, and I lied to you. There is one more. We just haven't been talking about it much lately, um, so it's easy to slip the mind. But we have reactivated our Patreon account. Uh, we are going to be doing that again. Uh, we, we've figured out some ways that that's going to work better for us and allow us to be accountable to you and give you things that we promise you if you are interested in, in giving us money. You don't have to. That's not what the show is about, but... You know, it does help us uh, pay hosting fees and replace equipment or, you know, make sure that we have a backup laptop for when Dustin forgets to bring his. So, <sighs> boy, yeah, no, you're never living this down, but that's OK. My point is, if that is something you're inclined to do, if you like the show so much that you're like, oh, I want to give back, you can. Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash GTM. You don't have to, though. Um, and, you know, uh, maybe tell your friends, you know. Just go talk to a person. You don't have to do anything online. Just uh, mm. tell a person you know that likes movies or likes podcasts or one or the other or neither. And say, hey, uh, here's this thing that I like. You should listen to it too and tell me what you think. So th th those are things that you can do for us at, and also things that you can do for yourself to help be part of this conversation. So it's not just me and these two chuckleheads uh, gather around a cell phone in my bedroom. <laughs> All it's right. got better acoustics in the living room. It True. definitely does, and the acoustics are going to be very important in this particular recording situation. But enough of that technical talk and uh, what have you and what not. It is now time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. I'm just leaving that in. I'm not even going to drop the sound in now, Arthur. Thank you very much for that. And we it was are very back. impressive. It's very impressive. <laughs> and I've heard that music a lot. This week's game is our favorite first-time filmmakers who should have stopped. That's right, favorite first-time filmmakers who should have stopped. Brought to you by The Night of the Hunter, directed by Charles Lawton. He only did the one movie. I wish he hadn't stopped. And maybe I'm going to go ahead and say, I, I don't know that all of my picks are going to be they should have stopped. Because I feel like a lot of them, yes, sometimes a filmmaker will never top their first feature. But I feel like should have stopped is a bit strong for some of the picks that, I have, that I've come across. The same for one of mine as well. I so, would totally agree. So with the caveat, maybe... My original stopped. wording was the person who peaked with their first film. I wasn't trying to be mean, as though some people here might be. I, I am a bad person, what can <laughs> I say? Well, I'm going to go with you first, you Arthur, no and I only have two neither. selections, so I'll go ahead and let you go now. Do we want to just run through them instead go, of round table? Yeah, run through the whole thing since we're not... I've we got like 18. So we we'll lack just, the just, symmetry. I hate everybody, so I'm just throwing them all out. Oh, jeez. Oh, right. Spielberg, I think he should have stopped at... I'm just kidding. No, what? <laughs> should have stopped at Duel? Since you name-dropped Jaws every other episode. Episode, really? Me? Not Jaws. I've Jurassic never Park. About Jurassic Jaws. Park is what I meant to say. I've seen it like once. Other J word movies. <laughs> Our favorite movie starting with the word J. <laughs> <laughs> this one's game. Um, you buy the letter. All right, my first one. I am not a big fan of this film, but I think it has a reputation. It obviously has a lot of clout. Uh, amongst certain circles, and that is Donnie Darko and Richard Kelly, and uh, he hasn't really gone on to do much mm -hmm. else after that. And I mean, Donnie Darko was kind of a, I think, perfect storm that hit a certain group of people at the right time and became this kind of cult 
uh, phenomenon. And for the most part, I, there's a, it's kind of elitist. It's trying to do something that really thinks it's smarter than it is. Uh, but there's some, it's really well constructed. It is an interesting story. And so I, I've got to say for it to carry the pieces it does, Kelly does a great job of orchestrating that. However, I'm not a huge fan of the movie, but he's a guy that really didn't go on to do much else and, and he could never really find his, his footing again. And so Richard Kelly's on that list. Um, this is a, a twofer because there's similar circumstances. Uh, these are a couple of guys who did first movies, got this huge push behind them. And when they did something big studio-wise, they just failed. And that's Colin Trevorrow and Josh Trank um, uh, with uh, Chronicle and, uh, oh my goodness, the name slipped from uh, my mind. Safety Not Guaranteed. Yeah, thank you. Safety Not Guaranteed. Safety Not Guaranteed was a big, uh, had a lot of love from the indie community. A lot of people I loved that it, movie. I dug it, yeah. Yeah, this is a good movie. Um, and then he got the call to do uh, Jurassic World and just couldn't handle it. He couldn't. There are certain, and there's been this thing in the last five to ten years I think mainly thanks to Marvel, uh, where we get these indie filmmakers who do a great job. You know, Ryan Johnson, now that, you know, out of the gate brick, he goes on to do Star Wars. You know, we've got other examples of this. Ryan Coogler with Fruitvale Station, who uh, kind of get this buzz about their name. They go make a big studio movie, and they do great. And then you've got other guys who can't handle working in the studio. and, and For whatever reason. Yeah. And I, there's a, a lot of nuance. There are a lot of factors. And we'll probably never know half of them. Yeah. I, I, I for one, think if Josh Trank, had his hands uncuffed and could have made his Fantastic Four movie, it would have been good. It, it, yeah, very well may have been. But he couldn't do it, and it didn't That's work out well for him. not what we got. Yeah. It's, it's also, I mean, yeah, it, it's one thing to make a, a really kind of fun movie on, like, 20 mil. It's a whole other thing to get handed 150 and just go, uh... And work within boundaries. What do I do? That's the thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, you have to be able to kind of humble yourself to work with those producers and executive producers and studio heads uh, when you're in that kind of situation. And so those are a couple of guys who I think have lost a lot of goodwill uh, the book of Henry Trevorrow's follow-up to uh, Jurassic World didn't do very well critically, and so both of those guys have kind of lost a step. And so, I, but I think they're kind of they represent a group of you know they're the indie directors who went on to work well in the studios, but then there are the ones who went on to flop in the studio system, which is just an interesting dynamic I think in the last ten years. Um, I think my final pick I'll throw out there is Ruben Fleischer. Uh, Ruben Fleischer did uh, Zombieland. Uh, which is just a great comedy. It's a really fun road movie, and, and it works. I think it's a really solid movie overall, especially that year it came out. It was one of my favorites. Um, and he orchestrated a really well-put-together comedy with a great cast, and he brought out a lot of good performances. Uh, but since then, he just hasn't been able to do much uh, of note. He did uh, 30 Minutes or Less mm -hmm. uh, with, I think, Eisenberg, and it didn't really you know work out critically or commercially. And then he did uh, Gangster Squad, uh, which had a lot of production issues due to uh, current events at the time, school shootings, things like that, which really... Or no, that was... It was the theater shooting. Yeah, the yeah. theater yeah. shooting in the Aurora. Yeah. yeah. There uh, is a, a really great episode of BoJack Horseman that... Thoughts uh, and Prayers? Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. That uh, tackles exactly what we're talking about right now. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, man... You know, there's just something about, and it seems to be a current wave, and I'm sure there are plenty of older directors who have faced the same kind of thing where, you know, they make one good movie and then they just can't live up to those expectations. Uh, but these are just a few that spring to my mind right away. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what are your selections for directors who should have quit? I could, I'm going to, these first two are could have quits. Uh, I'm going to start uh, real high with Sidney Lumet and 12 Angry Men. Now, I'm glad he didn't, but he could have. Because yeah. that's a good-ass movie. Yeah. And yes, he also went on to make Dog Day Afternoon uh, and Before the Devil Knows you're, you're Dead. And that's, you know, those are all like 10, 15, 20 years apart from each other. So I am so glad Sidney Lumet didn't quit. 
but he could have mm-hmm. because twelve angry men is that good. Um, another one that I'm 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 ooh, this one's hard for me to say. We actually talked about this director just last week. David Fincher. No, uh, <laughs> no, David Fincher should not have stopped after Alien Three. Uh, it's George A. Romero with Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah, yeah. he came yeah. up on a list I looked at. Yeah. Dawn of the Dead is damn good. I prefer Night, and I don't know that he made a stronger, more important, more vital film than Night. I like all the things that he made. I even like Land of the Dead from 2005. I have a kind of a soft spot in that, in my heart for that. My cousin uh, took me to see that when I was like 15. So yeah, nice. I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for that. And that, well, how you did know, you not bring that up every week on uh, other shows? I'm not as close to my cousin as I am to <laughs> some other people. Uh, you know, it's not the personal Derek. It's just you know, we, you know, families are weird. Sometimes you just yeah. don't you don't get as close to some relatives as others. But that is a very fond memory for yeah. me, and I have a lot of fond memories yeah. with him, and that's that's one of them. So yeah, salvage just, that relationship. Go. I'm yes. backpedaling in case every year. Yes, that's what I'm doing. My point is, yeah. Night of the Living Dead's fucking amazing. And yes, Dawn of the Dead is also quite good, and there are probably some people who think this is heresy for me to suggest that Night's better. I feel like it is. And again, it's not a should-have stopped, it's a could-have stopped. This next one for me is a real difficult one. To It's Kevin Smith, guys. Look, I... Oh, man. Yeah, the Smith oeuvre is, is a complicated and nuanced it is. bag of, of crazy tricks. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what to do with it. Uh, I don't know what to do with his his current career as a podcaster and like professional joke filmmaker. I don't know what to do with that, guys. All I know what to do is all I know what to do with is the View Universe movies because those are the only ones that are like really great. Yeah. Second Mirror Make a Pornos, not not bad. It's it's got some a, a lot of high qualities to it. Cop Out has about three really great moments and not a lot else happening. The View Universe. Uh, Movies though the the Jay and Silent yeah. Bob movies, uh, none of them's better than Clerks. They're just not. Dogma is really good, and it's really strong and really interesting. Chasing Amy is simultaneously like ahead of its time and also regressive and also progressive. It's just kind of a fascinating film, mm-hmm. but none of them. And Mallrats I think is just absolutely bonkers, like kind of slapstick almost really madcap sort of comedy that wasn't getting made in the 90s and isn't really made anymore at all. It really feels almost like a 60s comedy in some ways. But none of them are better than Clerks. And I think um, the comedian Sinbad once said, comedians are funnier when they have to ride the bus. And I think a lot of that applies to Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith had a lot of interesting things to say when he was struggling and when he became successful, I think it became hard for him to figure out what to do with that success because he was always that that schmuck, that kind of hoodlum yeah. kid from Jersey. And I think it was hard for him to reckon with that. Now again, there's a lot of good stuff in that filmography, but I think he would be hard pressed to say like any of them is I Clerks holds up. I haven't watched oh, yeah. it in probably five years, but the last time I did watch it, I was like, damn, this movie still works really well. I mean, there's it's not without its problems. I mean, it did come out in 92, but hmm. there's a lot of good stuff. 94. 91. 90, wow, you're right. Yeah, because Mallrats was like 93 or 94. Yeah. Damn. Wow. That's wild to think about. Um, so again, it's not without its problems. It is very much a product of its time, but I think it it really engages with that part of your early 20s where you're very lost either you went to college or you didn't but especially if you didn't go to college you're like fuck everybody's finishing college 
But even if you do go to college, you might end up working at that quick stop anyway and be like, yeah. did I just waste like $50,000 in four years of my life? Like, what the fuck did yeah. I just do? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so, I, again, I think it's it's a really kind of wonderful movie about, and yeah, there's plenty of movies about white male angst, but it's a good movie about white male angst, and if we got rid of most of those movies, that's at least one we should probably hold on to. And we could definitely stand to jettison a lot of those uh, you know, young white male angst movies out of the canon of film. I think we should hold on to Clerk. Yeah. Hold on to Clerk. So those are the three that I thought of. Yeah, uh, there, there's a trend there. It was all white guys, and that's the thing. It seems like white guys, like once they get successful, really just. And again, the first two are obviously could have stops, not should have stops. But I feel like that's going to be a theme throughout this list. Toby yeah. Hooper is another one who, I mean, come on, look, Toby Hooper made some fun movies. None of them are as good as Texas Chainsaw, and you know Correct. it. You know it. Even even the deepest, most die-in-the-wool gorehound knows there is nothing better in that filmography than that movie. Easy Rider. I mean, come on. There, it's a big list, and it's Shawshank Redemption. I mean, I I, I can yeah. just rattle these off. Darabont could have quit. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I can just keep rattling. And again, I'm I'm going to go ahead and say none of these are should have quits for me. Most of them are could have quits. Even Toby Hooper, I, I'm kind of glad that he kept trying and kept trying to... Top himself, he just couldn't do it, uh, and maybe that's that's really what this list has become about. This game has become about. It's not should have quits. It's couldn't top themselves. That's fair. That's fair, and I, I think that's a good way to think about it. Uh, even in terms of my selections, my uh, my two selections. My first is Kevin Costner, uh, Dances with Wolves. Although uh, politically problematic, perhaps, was a major achievement, and in many ways still a step forward, even though it's a lurching, somewhat stuttering, stumbling step uh, forward in some regards. But we are revisiting some of the issues uh, regarding race and uh, genocide of Native Americans. It does continue to have the white hero that we might later see in, say, a Kevin uh, no, excuse me, a Tom Cruise samurai movie or something like that. You know, that's, yeah. but after that, he makes what? The Postman, Open Range. Just, dude, you're just. Open Range I is like a good open movie. Range. Open Range is good. I like Open Range a lot. But I'm lesson. just saying, it's not Dances with Wolves. Yeah. It is not the achievement. And I've never seen Dances with Wolves. I but I'm going to tell you right now, I never will. I am not going to watch a three hour long movie starring <laughs> Kevin Costner. <laughs> Directed by Kevin Costner. Did he write it too? I think he did. I'm not gonna watch a three hour long Kevin Costner it's vanity real project. Good. I don't believe you. It's real good. I don't fucking believe you. I mean, make you watch a Frangie trash next year. Oh, oh Jesus. man, that's right, right. But I, I, mean, I, lo- I like Dance with Wolves, but I also see its problems. Right. Also, Dance with Blue Pocahontas and Avatar. You know, and it's often copied uh, formula. But that being said, it is what it is. I think Costner could have quit, and maybe, perhaps, should have quit. Um, The last uh, selection I have is one of those careers that works in reverse. That the films steadily get weaker. Sometimes they are more experimental and interesting in some ways, but they are uh, a little less disciplined and a little more self-indulgent as uh, this filmmaker's career goes forward, which is usually the trajectory you see in a great filmmaker to begin, and uh, there's a lot of potential and a lot of interesting artistry, and they're playing around great ideas, and they are a bit self indulgent and as they uh, garner success they continue to work forward to make their masterpiece and that is really the reverse story of the life of Orson Welles whose uh, first film Citizen Kane is absolutely a masterpiece it is a slog to get through I will give you that as a person who teaches film studies from time to time I'm gonna tell you right now 
<sighs> Citizen Kane, I just get bored because it's just been too many times at this point with it. But it is absolutely a masterpiece. There's yeah. no doubt. Uh, Magnificent Ambersons follows that, and then uh, Lady from Shanghai, a handful of other films. And he ends up making strange films like the Franz Kafka adaptation, The Trial, starring Anthony Perkins, or uh, F is for Fake, an interesting documentary about mm-hmm. sleight of hand and about forgery. Um, but I, I know, right? And it somehow works. Also, uh, weird, awkward male gaze. Uh, but yeah, it gets, it's, it's, it's icky. Icky, icky, icky. I almost chose Wells. Yeah. Well, I think that's, yeah. I mean, that's probably the great example of the, the guy who peaks at one and just can't recapture that magic. Yeah, and I mean, I get it. It's hard to do that again, and it's a lot of pressure to put on a yeah. 23-year-old kid. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, done. I'm the, going home. Yeah, he was 23 years old when he made Citizen Kane. Stupid. Jesus. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What's what? what who, <laughs> who does that? Orson Welles does that. <sighs> Who's directing this? That kid over there is going to direct this movie. Just put him in the seat and let's call it a day. I, I, I know. It, it, it's just insane. 23. 23, directing Joseph Cotton and others. I was living with my parents when I was 23. I mean, I had a kid and a job, but... I mean, I had a job, too. Yeah, I just got... out of college. You guys got married. God Yeah, damn. I know. <laughs> what have we done with our lives? We have done nothing. Yeah, we I'm are so depressed now, guys. people. Um, but if you're Orson Welles, you can keep wallowing along, doing the same sort of things over and over again, and, you know, you can die Rita Hayworth's hair blonde, um, which was a weird choice that he made in The Lady from Shanghai. But, anyway, that is our list of filmmakers who could have, or perhaps should have, stopped at one. Dear listener, we'd love to hear your selections via those magical means of social media already mentioned in the top half of the broadcast. Now, I think we're going to move on and get down to business. You going to sing it for me, guys? I thought about it, but nah. No? No, no singing at all? Nah. No, I'm good. Okay. Well, you know what, guys? It is business time, and that business time is, as always, analysis. There are a great many things going on, and I want to begin with a question posed directly at Mr. Dalton Stewart, but I do want the whole of the table to begin to address it. I want to talk about a little of the sociology of the serial killer and where this film fits in. I'll do my best. Say the words, man. We believe in you. Well, again, what's interesting is, you know... Serial murder is not a new phenomenon. It, no. It is as old as people are. Um, you can go back through the records of human history and find frontier serial... I mean, it's, it's as old as America. Well, Jack the Ripper in the late 19th century, right? Yeah, but it's a very... And that's really where it takes... Starts to take shape, right? Is with H.H. H. Holmes uh, in Chicago and Jack the Ripper in Victorian London. Or H.H. H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper, but who knows? Well, probably. I don't believe that. I don't believe that either. But... It is as American as apple pie. Um, we, we, I, I, I'm going to specifically focus on American serial killers because that's what I know more about, and I know more about the American reaction to serial murder than I do about other countries. Uh, just again, I'm, I'm not. I'm going to do my best to not talk out of school because uh, this is, you know, not not something I do professionally, uh, and only ever did it for study, uh, academically speaking. So I'll do my best to to not talk out of school, but. It is as old as we are, uh, as a, a landmass. Uh, let's not re- let me rephrase that. Obviously, this landmass predates white people being here. I'm, I'm a fucking idiot. 
Dances with wolves, man. Yeah, I will. <laughs> as long as the United States of America has existed as we know it today, there have been serial killers. And there are a lot of frontier serial killers. Uh, I can't think of any of their names off the top of my head, but just take my word for it. I promise. I'm not blowing smoke at you. The United States Cavalry. Well, yeah. Uh, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> Genocide and serial murder are two oh, totally different sorry, things. Sorry, I, I was talking about something else. Well, and that's the interesting thing, right? That's part of what made it so hard to track serial murders uh, for such a long time. Because it was really easy to kill people and get away with it uh, for most of human history. When you did so without the sort of standard motives of, you know, jealousy, yeah. wealth, if power, you killed sex. A, if you killed a stranger and just kept walking... yeah. That was it. Yeah. Drifter murders were very prolific throughout, you know, all of human history because you could just roll into a town and be like, hey, I'm the new guy. I'm friendly. Surprise, no, I'm not. I'm out of, I'm, I'm riding out at dawn before you have a chance to like send a telegram about what I looked like. Changing my name. Yeah. And dyeing my you, hair. You could just go into a new town and with a new name and you were a different person. Yep. So that's kind of where we're at because this does take place. Uh, Obviously, the film was uh, written, directed, and produced in the 50s. It takes place during the Great Depression, right? It takes place in the mm-hmm. late 20s, early 30s. I forget, Seems if, that way, forget yeah. if it gives us an exact date. I but don't it's recall one. Definitely during the Great Depression. And that's kind of really the end of. You, there's a lot of films about the end of the West. There's a lot of writings about the end of the West, you know, being the late 1800s. It really is the 1920s, the 1930s. Yeah, the automobile is there, the cowboy myth has kind of stopped. But the open road and the ability to just kind of blow in and out of people's lives and be a new person, that's really the end of this era. And that's when serial killing starts to become what we would know it, you know, as John Douglas wrote about in his his book Mindhunter, which Fincher, who came up a little bit earlier in our conversation, adapted for Netflix recently. That kind of serial murder, you know, the, the 70s is kind of talked about as the time when that really started to enter the American consciousness in another way. I mean, you know, you've got Manson in 69, which really changed things, but then you've got some Sam, you've got, you know, this is when it starts to really become a thing. In the 50s, it wasn't, you know, it was a really rare thing. And the guy that Charles, or Robert Mitchum's character is based on was a real dude. This, This serial killer was a real person. Now, he wasn't as prolific as Robert Mitchum's character is implied to be, uh, but he was a real spree murderer. Um, and again, the, the nuances and differences between spree murder and serial killing don't bear going into right now. But what makes it interesting is that Lawton read this book, um, him and his producers and screenwriters, whoever wrote, read this, somebody read this book and said, there's something here. There's something, excuse me, there's something specifically American about this story. And, and, and that's what works so well for me about this movie. It does seem to be a very much... a a Great Depression story. It, it, it keys in on so many themes because it's not about the murder. The murder is almost incidental to the plot. It's really about the hard scrabble life that these people were living. It's about rural poverty more than it's about anything else. And that is who serial murders tend to prey on is poor people, mm-hmm. is people on the outskirts of society, people who it is easy to take advantage of, like widows and children. And witters. Witters. As he says. As he says, you're right. Um, man, Mitchum is so good in this movie. Yeah, it's good. a real shame that Robert Mitchum was apparently an asshole in real life because he's oh. such a good actor. Yeah, apparently he wasn't a great dude. Oh, but that's too bad to hear. Yeah. I feel like that was most of Hollywood. 
I mean, do we know that it's not still most of Hollywood? No, Raving yeah. egomaniacs. They love looking at themselves. Yeah. Just saying. Yep. Uh, it, it's it's a real shame because he's he's so good in this um, and really brings such menace and terror to this character. Uh, and again, what the film engages with that I you know criminologists would fail to reckon with all throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s is the concept of the less dead. The less dead didn't really start to be codified as a concept until the last 20 years or so. And for those of you who, who this is not something you know a lot about, and that's okay, you you don't want to go down this road with me. It it's, takes up too much brain space. Um, the less dead is obviously people whose murders don't get investigated. People mm. of color, women of color especially, poor people, sex workers, um the indigent, the mentally handicapped. I mean, the, the list goes on. Not pretty white people, basically. Not rich people. People who, when they die, police tend to not look that closely at it. Whether through their own fault individually or through the fault of a system, it's people who don't really get paid very much attention to. You know, like widders <laughs> and small children who are living in poverty in rural areas. And that's one of the things that's really fascinating about this film and how it intersects with these real-world issues is it, it has such, such an interesting take and such a nuanced view of something that we wouldn't, as a society, have much of a concrete understanding of for another 25, 30 years. It wouldn't be until the FBI you know, founded the Behavioral Sciences Unit and really started doing research on serial murder. And again, against the Bureau's you know, better interests, it, it was scrappy people saying, no, there is something fucked up going on and we're ignoring it. Mm -hmm. And if we don't get ahead of it, it's not going to get better. And it did. I mean, think about it. Now we've got a new problem, which is mass shootings, and hopefully we'll figure that out. Uh, think about it. When was the last time a serial murder really terrified a nation? When was the last prolific serial killer like to go the down? The Baltimore BT Sniper, right? BTK was the last prolific oh, yeah. serial killer to go down. That's more of a spree murder thing, the, the Beltway Sniper. Um, it, it, it's got a weird intersection pathology-wise. There, okay. There's an intersection with serial murder and spree killer and spree shooter. There's an interesting pathology to that one. But BTK's the last one to go down. Right. I mean, and that's been 20, well, 15 years now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was mid-2000s, I think. Um, so it's very interesting how pathologies change, right? Because if we are to assume that all criminality is an outgrowth of societal failing or, uh, you know, they're, uh, that's the best way to put it. I was going to try to rephrase it another way, but that's, I think, the best way to put it. We assume all criminality is an outgrowth of societal failure. What is happening in society, the harms that are done that we do to each other, says a lot about who we are as a culture and who we are as a society. And as sex and sexuality became less um, puritanical, as we, as Americans, became less puritanical, I think serial murders, as we understood them, changed. They stopped being about sex crimes that were tied to murder, with like with Bundy and Dahmer, and started to become more about repression uh, in a different way that we're seeing with with spree shooters so again this is not an, a, a field in which i'm an expert i'm not going to pretend i am it's just something I'm, i happen to know a little about that i like to talk about and i find interesting and um 
depressing, but also the only way to get through it for me is to think about it. Well, so. that's why I shot the question at you. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dulcer. Now I'm going to shoot a question directly at Arthur Gordon, Uh-oh. but um, I do want uh, additional responses uh, because I think this film is very easily placed in dialogue with a Hitchcock film. Uh, Shadow of a Doubt is what I'm thinking about, a film both Arthur yeah. and I both like very much. And they both do this thing in which they are gothic and fairy tales at the same time. Um, so can you speak a little bit to that? Um, I have some words on the fairy tales bit also, but I want to hear what you have to say. Well, I, I think so far as dealing with you know gothicism in any any way, I think we go back, you know, as you mentioned earlier, with the German Expressionism. Mm-hmm. We're bringing in that kind of shadow and the darkness and kind of those heart angles, and there's this element of the house playing kind of a focal point in the films. Um, with its hidden secrets. Yeah. And, and going upstairs, going downstairs, we've got to go into the cellar or go into the attic, you know, whatever it may be. I believe the kids live upstairs, or it kind of looks like that, the way the house is constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an element of that. But the kids themselves, I think, factor into that element as well, because most fairy tales regard around the kid, and we've got a step-parent, or we've got step-family. A wicked step-parent, for yes. sure, yeah. Uh, and I think that's kind of, uh, you know, playing in, and so I think that's where that's all tying together, especially with Shadow of a Doubt, which has, when, as, when we were watching this, and as soon as kind of this this man comes in with kind of this hidden past that the kids don't really buy into right away as quickly as the parents do. I, I thought about Shadow of a Doubt and also Stoker, which is mm-hmm. a lot on Shadow of a Doubt as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, those elements are definitely there. Yeah, and it's interesting to me that when we do American Gothic stuff, that it's almost always a rural Gothic. It's yeah. hardly ever the sort of urban castles you know, um, sometimes, you know, in the uh, European Gothic, you might have the rural spaces of the, the moor between places, but it's always outside the sort of large, civilized, yeah. you know, very urbane, yeah. if not fully urban area. And for American Gothic, um, our, our ghosts, our hauntings uh, seem to be uh, usually they're, they're, they're real flesh and blood humans. Uh, that, again, are just evil for some reason, that they have sort of insinuated themselves into the family, but they do so in the rural and, in, uh, as Dalton pointed out, in terms of serial killing, in, in places of the poor. And uh, so I, I find that to be really, really interesting. The, the thing I was um, resonating the most with with the film, for obvious reasons, is its conversation about religion, that we have Robert Mitchell's character, the preacher, um, Harry Powell, Henry Powell, Henry Powell. Henry Powell. I'm going to get his Harrys and Henrys confused here. Uh, H-word Powell, um, uh, who does not want to be, uh, he wants to be called Reverend very, very badly. Of course, he's caught in a strip club uh, with the stolen car early in the film, um, continually humming, uh, leaning on the everlasting arms. And that the film does another thing that the first American Gothic novel ever does is a great book called Wyland by Charles Brockton Brown that I was thinking about. What's that title again? Uh, Wyland, like Scott Wyland or gotcha. Wieland. Uh, W-E-I-L-A-N-D. Great little novel um, that I've you know been thinking about forever um, and trying to find some way to get somebody to adapt into a screenplay with talent that I don't have. Um, <laughs> Nick Sanford, I'm actually talking about you. Anyway... Um, that that in that novel, part of the haunting of the story is that the fa- a father figure has adopted his own sort of private version of the Christian religion, right? And and says so him and the Almighty they got their own thing going on, which is almost the exact same thing. Uh, Henry says, uh, "I think that's 
the exact phrasing he yeah, uses. In yeah, fact. and this, we've got we've got our own little arrangement, and uh, that that this brings about the destruction of the older Wyland in Wyland, but also as part of what brings about uh, Henry's destruction. But what's interesting about this film, made by a European Brit, uh, looking at the United States, and it's sort of very very independent, perhaps anarchic, chaotic Protestantism, um, as it is quite sectarian, is that uh, the day is sort of saved uh, by Lillian Gish, who is also a person of very, very deep faith. Yeah. So it, it's not a, a question of faith or not faith. Um, you know, it's not doing simply kind of a Elmer Gantry or a, a leap of faith, a Steve Martin kind of send-up of a charlatan preachers. To, to, to paraphrase... Uh... The theme song of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. The situation's a little bit more nuanced than that. Yeah, uh, a bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it. It's less about faith and not faith, right? And it's more about uh, greed or uh, it's empathy versus uh, you know treating people as things and objects and ends to a mean. It's treating people like people versus uh, treating people as a way to advance your own wants and desires, right? Because what Lillian mm-hmm. Gish does, as, as we mentioned last week when we were talking about places to spend your final days, she's just dedicated her life to taking care of wayward children, orphans. People orphaned by a terrible, a, a nigh-apocalyptic time, uh, the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. I mean, these are two deeply traumatic times in, in, in our history for not just global uh, American history, global history, right? You know, a lot of displaced children during this time period. And that is what she has done. She has actually, you know, used this faith that she has to really try and make the world a better place. And Pal, it's unclear if he buys his bullshit or not. You know, we never really get a yeah, sense of his in, of his internal... Uh, belief structure, whether or not it, it really is just a show or if he, he buys into it. I think, I think it's, it's a method of self-justification. Um, I think it might just be part of the snake oil. It I, could I, be. I, I, it, it could go either way. It's really not relevant. Uh, I, I think, again, what it comes down more to is um, not knowing who you can trust uh, a lot of the times, especially as a child. And uh, that's what Lillian Gish represents is somebody who is there to teach children lessons they need to learn which is you're right you can't trust everybody and you're right to not trust me right away you don't know me mm-hmm. um and that's that's what i like about it here but again i didn't mean to derail you but i just i really like your point about these two separate expressions of uh religious adults uh, as it pertains to the two children at the center of the film yeah, faith is an aspect taken by the person in their totality. And a person in their totality, if they are broken and self-centered and greedy, will use faith to further augment that brokenness and self-centeredness and greed. If a person has done the sort of uh, what Thomas Merton might call soul care, in which they develop uh, an altruistic, a virtuous, a uh, kind and generous sort of life, then faith becomes something that supports that as well. And uh, I think uh, Lawton uh, wisely sees the both in it. And uh, that's a good thing, and I and I like that more nuanced conversation as opposed to just the simple religion bad, religion good, you know, that you might hear from a camp that wants very much to defend itself. 
um, that this has got quite a bit of nuance in the 50s, you know, about this. Now, the last thing I want to discuss, gentlemen, and I don't know how much you guys know about this, so I might drop some information on you, but we'll see. I think uh, there's a conversation that's very contemporary that we can have regarding uh, this film, considering it's two female stars, uh, Shelley Winters mm-hmm. um, and also Lillian Gish. Lillian Gish was a uh, darling of the silent era. Uh, She's a vaudeville performer, right? Vaudeville performer, yeah. was in a bunch of D.W. Griffith films uh, in the 20s on into the 30s. She did not transition well to the talkies, but she does get this role here in 55, uh, playing a old woman, basically. Um, Shelley Winters... She's clearly... She's playing an old woman is clearly only, like, maybe 55. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Shelley Winters uh, begins her career basically at this point uh, playing sex pots. That's yeah. what she does. Um, she's not... She's easy on the eyes and uh, has all those sort of Hollywood starlet, you know, uh, casting markers mm-hmm. uh, that one might look for. And that she goes on in the 70s to basically play Lillian Gish roles. That she has this bit of moment until the early part of the 60s, doesn't work hardly at all, and then works a bunch for Roger Corman and others in the 1970s in these B pictures mm-hmm. um, playing um, old crones. And I just want to talk about women. And casting women, and how there are more women in the world than simply old matronly mothers or witches, mm-hmm. and young virgins or whores, um, which yeah, seems it, to be the roles. And again, th- this is yet another situation where there's a lot of nuance, because that Lillian Gish role mm-hmm. is deep, and there's a lot to it, but at the end of the day, she is this old hard-ass, right? Right. This old hard-ass with a heart of gold. Um, this mean old crotchety old fossil who really just at the end of the day wants to take care of other people. And you're right, there's more to it than than that. Uh, there's more to being a person than those like three or four boxes that um, the Hollywood system so frequently uh, puts women in. Again, this is a time to be talking about this kind of shit. Uh, we're going to be talking about this a lot, probably for the rest of our lives, honestly, because we haven't been talking about it enough. And uh, if this show um, has ever not talked enough about these kind of issues, we've tried our best and we will endeavor to do so even more in the future. But uh, I think it all comes down to, especially then, but still to this day, who's making the movies, mm-hmm. who's behind the camera. Um, and that's, at the end of the day, when those things are going to happen. Because you have a bunch of dudes who are not thinking about these issues. And again, it's not even that nefarious most of the time. It's just, uh, oh, okay, I'll tell a story like I've been told a story. And that's yeah. a big part of it. A big yeah. part of it is, it's, and don't get me wrong, there's malicious intent all the time. Sure. But just as often as that, there's no malicious intent. It's just a guy who wants to tell a story and only knows how to tell stories the way he's been told a story. Yeah. I do think it's interesting with Lawton's homosexuality in play as well, that mm-hmm. th- there is a bit more depth and a bit more nuance. Even to the Shelley Winters character. Correct. And that beautiful shot when she dies and she's at the bottom of the lake. <sighs> it's tra- it's tragic. It's it- Yes. And it's not exploitative. No. Because it is seen through the eyes of her child, man. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. And there is uh, Charles Lawton being gay. There's probably that removal of the sexualization uh, for him. He knows what audiences want to see, and he's kind of fucking with that a little Mm -hmm. bit, which I think is pretty cool. Um, And I think you're absolutely right. That probably plays... Well, not probably. Let's say potentially plays into a more nuanced portrayal because he doesn't see women as objects as much, even though he's working in a system that very frequently does. 
Um, so I think there, that opens up the opportunities for him as a storyteller to offer more nuance uh, and offer up opportunities to, to Lillian Gish and say, hey, I haven't forgot about you. I still think you're awesome. I've got a part that I think would make sense for you. Do you mm-hmm. want to be in this movie? Um, so I think that there's something to that. Uh, but then again, you've got Robert Mitchum, who apparently was actually just absolutely terrible to Shelley Winters. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that guy. So, and that, you know, that's kind of Lawton's job is to stop that, but, uh, Robert Mitchum's got more pull than he does. Right. Watching this movie, I almost began to cast an Elseworlds kind of, uh, mm-hmm. scenario. Like, what if this movie had caught fire quicker and Lawton was allowed to make more films and other filmmakers would go into work really seeking hard to uh, to imitate Lawton and his proclivities. Well, I think I think a lot of filmmakers have gone on to imitate this film. Mm-hmm. A lot. And again, as we talked about with the, the um, Sight and Sound list that always is showing up in the director's top spots, there are a lot of directors who will list this as one of the films that's influenced them the most. Yeah. But I think they're taking maybe more of the style. Than they are the gender politics. For sure. You will. Yeah. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think maybe that's something worth uh, making sure people don't forget, is to not just yeah. be influenced by form and style, but to be influenced by theme and yeah. tone and, and narrative. Right. Yeah. So, well, there you go, guys. We've had a fun conversation about Night of the Hunter so far. It's come to the point of the show where we must render a verdict regarding this film shell for trash Ellis for instead i go to you first well we'll do dalton first because he's the obvi picker so dalton shell for trash shock us and then tell us what else i mean or instead so yeah it's going on the shelf uh it very quickly shot to the top of my favorite films and uh i, I don't know what you want from me guys it's just I, I think it's an absolutely remarkable piece of cinema that is kind of a bizarre time capsule of a movie and it's it's so strange that somebody made a movie this good and never directed another film Mm. and and frankly i feel like i need to learn more about why um and i'm sure there's a reason it tanked at the box office well it didn't do very well well lawton didn't i mean lawton died probably not long after right he didn't live that's true that is true i'd forgotten about that so again for all of the reasons we've talked about it's a must watch what should you watch with it well you know what I'm going to go ahead and pick something totally out of school for me, because it's one of my mother's favorite Robert Mitchum films, and it's Holiday Affair from 1949. It's oh, yeah? It's <laughs> a Christmas movie starring Robert Mitchum and Janet Leigh. Um, yeah, it's... I'm in. Look, before you get too in, I'm going to tell you this. There are moments in this movie when you watch it where you're going to go, what the fuck? <laughs> that's not okay. And yet, it is sweet and endearing. And I think that's what makes... I watched this movie with my mother over the holidays this year and couldn't stop thinking, what? That's not okay. But also couldn't help but kind of be enamored with this film and couldn't help but kind of love it a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's really weird to, to see what uh, general audiences, although it also tanked the box office in 49. There you go. Uh, and didn't, it, it's kind of now become a minor holiday classic because of Turner Classic Movies, uh, which is where I watched it with my mother. But uh, I, there's just something about it that is really charming in spite of some really problematic plot points uh, and just really problematic behavior. Um, the, the film actually kind of lampshades a little bit. Mm. Uh, Robert Mitchum's character is kind of a freewheeling guy um, who falls in love with this war widow. Um, Jada Lee's great in it, though. I want to be clear about that. It's just that Robert Mitchum is super inappropriate. Like, mm. just complete, his character is completely inappropriate mm-hmm. with this woman who is in a committed relationship. Um, and again, it's 
very interesting how the film navigates these things because it kind of knows a little bit. But at the same time, it is still a movie from 1949, and it's very interesting what a film thought general audiences would think was romantic in 1949. It's it's bizarre and endearing in ways that kind of defy logic for me. But it's a great Robert Mitchum performance, and it's a great Janet Lee performance, and it's funny, honestly. It, it's not a bad romantic comedy. It's just absolutely bonkers at times uh that that it's sh- that it's sometimes working in spite of itself so holiday affair i just uh I, my mom likes that movie a lot and uh i just uh, felt like uh, worth mentioning if you want to see a totally different side of robert mitchum um what else should you watch um let's talk about probably one of the other earliest uh an earlier serial killer movie and that's m from 1931 nice. by fritz lang very expressionist oh, holy shit yeah and I, there's definitely some some hints of just in terms of like formal camera work uh from that film going on in Night of the Hunter. Uh and M's probably better. Like if I'm being perfectly honest, M is probably better. I just really like that Robert Mitchum Peter performance. Peter Laurie is really good. Peter Laurie's great. Now. I don't think his performance is as good as Mitchum's though. No, that Mitchum's performance is better. I think yeah. I mean the film is doing more. The film mm, is saying yeah. more, it's engaging yeah. with yes. more. Um it's more influential, it's more impactful. More people have seen it. I prefer Night of the Hunter, but M is a beautiful pairing. In fact, I actually did pair it. Uh, I did pair M with Night of the Hunter. I watched them back to back. Nice. Uh, both for the first time. Um, and this is the one that I decided we had to talk about. We could have talked about M just as easily as we talked about Night of the Hunter, though. So maybe you'll prefer M. It is going to be kind of, you know, your mileage as a viewer is going to vary just based on your personal preferences. Uh, but M is great. Um, and is every bit the masterpiece that I think Night of the Hunter is. So those are going to be my else's, my uh, my uh, things that I recommend you pair this film with. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dolphin. Mr. Arthur Gordon, let's say you, first-time viewer, shell for trash, else, or instead. Um, yeah, I'm going to shelf it. Yeah, I think it's a great example of uh, how to construct a suspense film and how to do that. And also play with uh, tropes and subvert some ideas and stuff like that. So I, I will put it on the shelf. Uh, just a quick note, uh, Lawton did pass away in 62, okay. uh, so, so a few he, years, but his health had already started to begin deteriorating in the late 50s, and gotcha. he had slowed down, so I imagine that's why he kind of didn't take on any more big projects like Good this. Good to know. Thanks for looking that up for us. Yeah, um, but uh, else, uh, of course, Shadow of a Doubt, Stoker, yeah. like I mentioned, I think those... Stoker's a good pick. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, know you guys both love that. I really need to catch yeah. up with Yeah, it. you do. Um, but, I mean, Shadow of a Doubt, I think, is a perfect companion piece to this film, definitely. Uh, but I'm going to pick a couple of movies to go with this to have a fun marathon. They're all in different genres, uh, but they they play. I mean, the trope of you know parents out being smarter than or kids being smarter than parents is mm-hmm. nothing new. You know, it's a big trope. Uh, but I, I would like to pair this with the Way Way Back, uh, which is a fun coming of age movie with Sam Rockwell and Steve Carell and Tony Collette, um, where uh, you know Steve Carell's kind of a jerk, but the mom doesn't really if she notices she doesn't really let on and she doesn't you know she lets a lot of that behavior slide uh and so i think that's an interesting pairing but also it's a really interesting pairing actually and with sam rockwell and the lillian gish role yeah <laughs> half lillian gish half uh old man down by the river I, yeah i can't remember yeah birdie yeah Birdie's honestly <laughs> arthur birdie. the more i think about the way way back it is the night of the hunter without serial murder and hidden money yeah which is Damn, what a great else. Yeah. Uh, damn. Yeah, I like that pick a lot. One more I'm going to pick, just, uh, and it seems way out there, but that kind of that same thing, and that is uh, The Lost Boys, um, where we have the mom who starts dating this guy, and the kids are like, ah, no, 
not buying this thing. I, yeah. I think this guy's a you know master vampire guy, and so I, th- I think those are a couple of pairings that work well with the the Knight of the Hunter. All right, I like those picks a lot. Aren't you they? know what's weird? Do you? Here's the thing that happened in cinema history. The Disney Channel made an original film called Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire that's just the Lost Boys. <laughs> it's just Joel Schumacher's Lost Boys for the Disney Channel. <laughs> I huh. know that movie. It's got a Carolina Ray. Yeah, it's got a good what? cast. Yeah, yeah. Carolina Ray. Both have seen this dude. movie is what's amazing to me well, right now. The, I mean, we grew up on the Disney Channel. Yeah, man. Um, okay. I had a little sister. You know how many like, great original Disney movies? Smart House? Johnny Tsunami? Nope. Uh, all of those uh, even Stevens. There's a couple of hidden gems. Uh, there's some fun stuff. In there. I'm I'm afraid to revisit any oh, of, of them. Yeah, I don't want to find out. But uh, there's I, the big. Uh, what's the one with the uh, the white girl goes to live with the black family and you know, you know what I'm talking about? It's kind oh, of a shit. Yeah, I don't know what it's called. I can't. Remember. But I think they switched. Well, I think a black girl goes to live with the white family and the white girl goes to live with the black Disney family Channel. Really trying to reach for something. Hey guys, let's do a Disney Channel original movie marathon. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, it's gonna be. <laughs> We're all in. It'll be absolutely bonkers. It it'll sounds be like fun. pure madness. Well, I mean, the good trash owner cast is the name of the show. So okay, I can't. <laughs> I say, look, on the trash. We, I can't <laughs> object it. Yeah, we're, we've done this over two hundred and fifty times at this point. We're gonna run out of uh, out of Paul Verhoeven movies eventually. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not gonna be able to go to Schumacher and Verhoeven forever. <laughs> John Carpenter. We've Fair already enough. worked. In fact, we've already worked our way through like over half of their collective filmographies. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I am also going to say Shelf. I think this movie's great. I I'm think so, it's... had you, I, we haven't even talked about this, and I, I don't I've seen it before, yeah. You had seen it before, mm-hmm. Arthur? I have not. And I'm, I'm just so glad I got to introduce this movie yeah. to, to you, Arthur. Yeah. Dustin, I'm glad I got to make you revisit it. Uh, yeah, I was glad to see it again. I mean, it's a good movie. It, it, it's a movie I, I find uh, perpetually interesting uh, for uh, stylist reasons and also thematic reasons. And so, yeah, I think it's absolutely essential watching and I would recommend it to everyone. Uh, I'm going to go say this, though. It does sort of uh, begin to speak to a moment that's going to happen in the 60s. There's this sort of a filmmaking term that's used, uh, Jay Hoberman uses it some, to describe the spooky 60s, mm-hmm. this weird kind of prescient seeing its own future without really knowing it and also just that the uh, the entire time frame is sort of haunted by um this strange repressed madness mm-hmm. right that seems to be uh built inside of a uh, uh, Harry Powell's character Henry Powell's character I'm going to do it wrong all the time um and, and so one of the sort of par excellence examples of the spooky 60s is, and I think I've mentioned this before, I know I did when we were doing our Denzel Marathon, which is the original uh, version of The Manchurian Candidate, uh, starring Frank Sinatra, uh, that it's got some of the same sort of weirdness uh, working on. Also, uh, Bogdanovich's Towers uh, might be another uh, example film uh, that you might want to look at in terms of that. Uh, in terms of just this Gothicism and its uh, German Expressionism, and uh, to, to see the, the great work of Mrs. Lawton, uh, Miss El so, Lancaster, see The Bride of Frankenstein. I think it's totally worth your time. Yeah, Read the novel Wyland by Charles Brockton Brown. It is the perhaps the first American novel at all, and definitely the first American Gothic novel. And so it's it's a dense read, but it is also weird in ways. It's interesting, 
uh, in conversation with us. Lastly, I'm going to recommend a comic book. I'm going to recommend the second volume of the Sandman series, The Doll's House, mm-hmm. in which the serial killers all gather together for a convention, and they have these interesting conversations oh my uh, God. regarding themselves, their lives, and there are a couple... There's Neil Gaiman, you fucking nut. It's, it's so <laughs> great. Well, you know, and they call oh, it a God. serial with a C convention to sort of code it. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's great. It's, it's put together by a guy whose name is Nimrod, not Nimrod as in you buffoon, but Nimrod yeah. isn't a mighty hunter before the Lord. He's got four ice chests at home, and isn't it about time for a fifth? It's crazy dark and scary, and also like just side-splittingly funny. Um, and uh, you know Neil Gaiman, actually. Neil Gaiman, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he um, he curses them at the end to tell all the serial killers, "You're going to leave this place knowing exactly what you're worth and how little that is." Well, and that's and done, and, and that's, they leave. You know, that's the thing that you got to be careful with because while these people are fascinating to question what makes them fascinating is how could somebody be that broken and do that many terrible things to someone their modus operandi is not fascinating their lives are not fascinating their lives are full of pain and trauma just like everyone else's yeah and they're monsters they're monsters they're not cool they're not fun or sexy or interesting they're monsters what is interesting is how do we stop this from happening to people how do we as a society not make these guys how do we stop that from happening? And that's what's interesting. Mm-hmm. Speaking to uh, society and violence, just one interesting place, thing that we didn't even get a chance to touch on analysis, I want to touch on really briefly before we uh, uh, tee up for next week. It's interesting to me that Lillian Gish does not kill Henry Powell. It is. It's very interesting to me. Uh, do you think that's a Hayes Code thing, or do you think that's an intentional choice? Because I thought about that a lot. Hayes Code would allow for her to shoot him and kill him. Really? It would yeah. punish him. Yeah, to punish him. Because of the self-defense. Self-defense, okay. and uh, he is clearly the villain. He has to die. Yeah. You know. So you think it's an intentional choice to allow the criminal justice system to kill him? Yeah. That's, and it's interesting to me that the film makes that choice, to let Lillian Gish wound him in defense of these children as opposed to... Uh, for her to be the one that kills him. I think it's a way to keep her innocent in some ways, yeah. too. Okay. I, I, that's what I sort of read plus, it as. I mean, there's, I mean, she carries grace. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. she's a very grace, you know, in mm-hmm. the fact of giving grace, you know, especially bringing these kids. And I think that's probably what would stop her is, you know, she doesn't want to take this man's life, but she's going to protect her kids. That's an interesting point. The only other thing that I thought about, and I actually mentioned this probably Hayes Code thing, and uh, my roommate Heath Huffman uh, from The Praise Zone with Heath and Alex had a different take. Uh, when... Um, little Timmy, whose name I cannot remember. Mm. I'm just going to call him Little Timmy. Sure. Uh, when Henry Powell's arrested and, and remembers his father being arrested, oh, and so says, take yes. this damn money. Take it. And at first I read that I was like, well, crime can't pay. Um, I wanted him to keep the money and use it to help fund this uh, beautiful orphanage that was taking him in. And I was like, well, the Hayes Code won't allow anybody to get away with crime. Yeah. Because honestly, fuck the banks. It was the 30s. They were foreclosing on people left and right. But Heath pointed out, uh, in his wisdom, nah, man, he just wants to be rid of this. He sees what it's done. He sees the lives it's destroyed, including his own. And I was like, okay, shit, that's deep. That's heavy. The ring's got to go to Mordor. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. He doesn't want to sully this beautiful, perfect place that he's found with with blood money. With Mm -hmm. the money that cost his father's and his mother's lives. Yeah. So, uh, at first I read that as, uh, well, that's dumb. But yeah, the, the, in, in Heath's wisdom, he pointed that out to me, and I think that's uh, at really that moment alone. Like, wow, the fact that the movie ends with that, free—that's something else. 
Uh, we haven't even talked about, you know, we talked about the, the crone and, uh, mm-hmm. and virgin and whore dynamics that films present to women. The great thing is that Lillian Gish's character does not chastise the, uh, the teen girl in the house for wanting to go out on dates and meet men and, like, you know, put herself out there. The, the, the sex positivity that that scene has is way ahead of its time. Yeah. So we haven't, that's how much stuff there is in this film, guys. That's how much stuff there is. It's good stuff, guys. We recommend it very, very highly. That's why we like to do this anti-trash marathon in January. Again, get some real good stuff under our belts that we can pretty much typically almost always agree that we enjoy. Our next, and uh, I think will end up being final film of our January marathon, will be a Netflix original yet again. Um, We did a Netflix November, and uh, we're coming right back to it uh, with a female-helmed film, the film Mudbound. And so, very, very excited. It's going to be Dee Reese's multi-generational uh, family tale about uh, post-World War II South. Um, the critics sometimes call it an illustrated audiobook. So, we're going to hear about that, I'm sure, in our reviews. Yeah, we, we were going to do it for Netflix in November, but uh, apparently we, we found out it was just too good. Yeah, so, here we go. We're going to do that next. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. <laughs>